Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 17, From the Pharaohs to the Prophets. Welcome back, everyone. I hope we're all enjoying our start to the new year right. Admittedly, it's been a whirlwind last few weeks for me personally, the holidays and finally getting the final pieces to our house done and whatnot. And for anyone who's ever undertaken a cross-country move or any long-distance move for that matter, I can tell you that I am finally happy that it is nearly 100% done. Now, with that being said, This episode is going to be a little shorter than normal, and I know I've said that in the past only to go on for about 40 minutes worth of podcasting, but this week I think I will actually stick to my word. Consider this a transition episode as we finish up Napoleon's time in Egypt for the first part of his Middle Eastern expedition before we talk about his infamous march on the Ottoman heartland and his campaign in Syria and the Levant over the next couple of weeks. But that said, there is still plenty to talk about this week before Napoleon departs Egypt, as he still had to try to pacify a country that wanted nothing more than the French to be expelled from the region entirely. So, let's pick up from where we left off last week with Napoleon finding out about the disastrous loss of his fleet to Admiral Nelson in the Battle of the Nile. When we talked about the effects the Battle of the Nile had on Napoleon and his men, we mentioned how Napoleon planned to use the defeat as a sort of moral victory for the campaign something of a bond builder between he and his soldiers as they now had a new purpose in trying to march up to India and tear down Britain's precious trade with the Asian subcontinent. And while he most certainly believed this to be the case on the surface, there is little doubt that, internally, Napoleon understood the gravity of the situation the loss of his navy presented. He was cut off from much of the needed supplies from mainland Europe, he lost much of his cash on the Orient when it exploded in the southern Mediterranean, and the rumors the loss created added the possibility of mutiny among his troops who were growing weary of the campaign and the Egyptians who hated their presence there. But still, he refused to waver and made sure that the purpose of the campaign moving forward was clear. The British will perhaps oblige us to do greater things than we proposed to perform. Even with the defeat, Napoleon was dealing with a population that was, at best, skeptical of his intentions in Egypt. Napoleon tried his best to foster an image as a liberator of the country from the Ottoman and Mamluk rule, but his actions wavered between brutal absolute dictator of unoccupied land and pandering elitists trying his best to bring a foreign population to its aid. One way he tried to do this, though, was to honor the prophet Muhammad during his birthday celebrations. You see, shortly after the Battle of the Pyramids of the Nile, Napoleon received words that the imams of Cairo, Rosetta, and the surrounding towns were not intending to celebrate the prophet's birthday due to a lack of cash and the unstable political situation within the country. In reality, they were fearful that such celebrations would provoke a French military response, either due to religious aspects of the observance or the fact that it could be misinterpreted as a potential uprising. But Napoleon, seeing an opportunity to win support over the country, decided to use the event to the French's advantage. He offered to fund the entire project, despite also lacking money to finance such a large celebration. He dressed for the occasion in traditional Muslim clothes, 
turban included, at the local sheikh's house. He organized military parades to honor Muhammad and helped to prepare the celebrations that would end up lasting over three days. Lanterns were lit, processions leading to various mosques containing grand pomp, and large crowds gathered for live entertainment throughout the cities to witness magicians, dancers, and plays. Even some French journalists who had accompanied the expedition were honestly quite shocked at the lewdness at some of the celebrations, eschewing their previous views of the supposedly conservative population of Egypt. On Muhammad's birthday, in 1798 celebrated on August 23rd in accordance with the traditional Muslim calendar, the French artillery fired off cannon salutes with regimental bands joining the crowds in celebrations. The French officer corps, led of course by Napoleon, were feted with titles at a dinner held by the cleric Said Khalil al-Bakri. Napoleon was presented with perhaps the most prestigious of all, Ali Bonaparte, in which he was declared a son-in-law of the Prophet. Now, Napoleon himself declared that Said was the most recent of Muhammad's descendants in keeping up with the back-and-forth grab-assing. But after the celebrations were over, Napoleon decided to open the Institut d'Egypte in the palace of one of his defeated adversaries, Kasim Bey, with himself as vice president. It was led by many of the savants he brought along for the journey, and its mission was to help improve the infrastructure of Egypt and expand the knowledge of science and technology upon the population, and to take stock of a more efficient way to improve the current state of the army. Oh, and of course, can't forget, it was also used to house looted artifacts, which were to be sent back to Paris once there was ample way of getting it there. Now, of course, Napoleon had hoped that the use of the Institute would help further endear himself to the Egyptians, ostensibly as a way of showing how the French were investing in the quote-unquote civilization of a backwards people. But much of it, like much of the campaign, was met with mixed results. While many of the clerics were impressed by modern science, it did little to change their entrenched religious conservatism. And in the end, the Institute functioned more as a military headquarters and propaganda machine to help boost troop morale, though the Institute was an important piece in the growing field of Egyptology during the 19th century, and the Institute is still open today, though, unfortunately, much of the original building burned down in 2011 during the Arab Spring, with many of the documents inside also being lost. Now, while all this was going on, Napoleon was also playing the role of top diplomat in the region by sending correspondences to both sides of the Mediterranean. Back in France, he wrote to Talleyrand, believing that Talleyrand had already spoken with Sultan Selim III, <laughs> oh, that Talleyrand, explaining that thanks to his supposed diplomacy with the Sultan and Napoleon's own conquest of Egypt, that the French would secure the lucrative trade of sending grain to the Ottoman heartland, as well as protecting the subjected Egyptian pilgrims on their voyage to Mecca. What Napoleon, obviously, did not know was that none of this diplomacy had taken place and that the Ottomans were in full preparations for a counteroffensive against the French. But we also know that Napoleon was never one to put all of his eggs in one basket. At the same time he wrote to Talleyrand, he also sent an envoy the other way to meet with the Pasha of Acre and an enemy of both the Mamluks and the Ottomans, Ahmed Pasha al-Jazar, more commonly known as Jazar Pasha. Now, we'll give more details on Jazar when we get to the siege of Acre, but for those who don't speak Arabic, Jazar means butcher in English, and he certainly lived up to his given title. Jazar was known to maim his victims, often shotting his victims' feet with horseshoes, nailing Christians to walls, and stripping officials naked before having them hacked to death in front of crowds of onlookers. Jazar was also well known for his raids on Bedouin tribesmen, as well as his hatred of the ruling Ottomans, 
But even despite the overtures that Napoleon sent his way, he likely knew that any attempt at an alliance with the French would mean his eventual overthrow as de facto governor of modern-day Syria, and so he rebuffed the offer and ultimately made peace with the Ottomans. He did spare Napoleon's envoy, though, which was a plus, because Jazar was known to behead those whom he didn't like, foreigner or not. But we'll come back to Jazar shortly, as he'll be an integral part to our story in the coming episodes. As the summer turned to the fall, Napoleon was now of the understanding that he would need to confront the Ottomans head-on. He received intelligence on October 20th that they were amassing a large force in Syria to launch a counteroffensive, and Napoleon began to drop plans to meet the threat. Now, Napoleon had originally intended to return to France with Egypt under firm French control, or so he thought, but with the Levana hotbed for anti-French resistance, he knew that leaving the Middle East now would likely throw the region back into chaos and allow the British to reassert their influence on the mainland. That night, however, the Egyptians would put any thoughts of Napoleon's return to rest as they forced his hand. Now, as we've mentioned a few times now, the French were growing increasingly unpopular amongst the average citizens of Egypt, particularly those in Cairo, where the head of the French military brass were based and carried out the administration of the country. With their unpopularity reaching its crescendo, Cairo citizens began covertly sending weapons around the city and fortifying defensive positions, particularly around the Al-Azhar Mosque in the historic Islamic core of the city. With Napoleon busy drawing up his plans to counter the Ottoman threat in Old Cairo, the citizens revolted on the morning of October 21st, the minarets around the city sending out the call to kill any and all Frenchmen that they encountered. Now, the French governor of Cairo, General Dominique Dupay, was lanced to death, and Napoleon's personal aide-de-camp, the Polish captain Joseph Solkowski, was also killed, his body fed to the dogs. Now, rumors had spread across the city that it was Napoleon who had been killed, which further emboldened many of the rebels to continue their advance. But, as we all know, Napoleon was not killed, and while the citizens of Cairo certainly had the passion to expel the French, they had no centralized leadership. And if you're going to try to go toe-to-toe with Napoleon Bonaparte, you'd better have a solid plan in order to face his response. A response which was as brutal as you would probably imagine. After Napoleon had received the information on which strong points were being threatened, no doubt completely infuriated at this point, he gathered around 30 men and marched on the most vulnerable points of the city, restored confidence in his troops, and then began to enact quick defensive measures. Most importantly, though, The French rushed to control the Cairo Citadel, which then, as now, dominates the cityscape and offered near impenetrable protection with its height elevation and 10-foot-thick walls. Now, because it was lightly defended, a critical error on the Egyptians' part and a big reason why a lack of centralized command crippled their chances at leading a successful revolt, the French were able to take it with relative ease. Setting up cannons around the citadel, the French shelled any and all areas that contained rebel forces, including the Al-Azhar Mosque, battering many of its walls. Now, with covering fire, French troops began to push back and destroyed any barricades that came across. With superior leadership, manpower, and, of course, weaponry, they repelled the Egyptians back to the mosque, with Napoleon even leading some of the marches, personally hunting down rebels in the streets, saying, quote, He, i.e. God, is too late. You've begun, now I will finish. Once the rebels were inside the mosque, rounded up like cattle, Napoleon ordered the cannons to fire upon it, and he and his men stormed through the gates, slaughtering the inhabitants, injuring or killing nearly 2,500 in the siege alone. By the time the city had been fully subdued, some five to 6,000 Egyptian casualties were recorded. The French had suffered over 800, though Napoleon, true to form, only reported 60 back to the directory. But the suffering was not yet over for the Chirons. 
In one of his more brutal displays, Napoleon, infuriated at the attempt of revolt in response to his self-reporting leniency, made sure that the population would never again attempt such an act of rebellion. He ordered any known rebels to be beheaded and their bodies thrown into the Nile, the idea being that their corpses would float upriver and discourage anyone from trying to rise up against the French again. Napoleon himself even wrote to General Jean Renner later that week that, quote, every night we cut off 30 heads. The French meted out torture for even the smallest of infractions, including the excruciating practice of bastinando, which involves using a whip to inflict blows on the soles of the feet. The large amount of nerve endings, small bones, and tendons located there make it unbearable for the subject, but its effectiveness was undisputed. In less than a month, Egypt, save for a few religious zealots, was again pacified, its citizens now under firm French submission. Now, on a personal note, it was also around this time that Napoleon began his affair with Pauline Fioré. Now, we mentioned her briefly in our episode on Josephine, but Napoleon, only months after having discovered her affair with Charles, now began his own dalliance with the younger wife of a French lieutenant, Jean-Noël Fioré, who made the unfortunate mistake of bringing her along for the Egyptian expedition. In less than a week, Napoleon and Fioré had consummated their affair, and Napoleon, in a way to keep her all to himself, sent Lieutenant Fioré back to France on, quote, important business, but obviously just to get him out of the way so that he could have her for himself. But Fioré was captured by the British en route, sent back to Alexandria, and discovered that Pauline had been involved in an affair with Napoleon and was given the name, quote, Cleopatra. Now, there are conflicting reports of what he did once he discovered his cuckolding, with some saying he tossed a bucket of water in a rage or whipped her to the point of making her bleed. But the end result was the same. He divorced her, and Pauline would essentially act as Napoleon's stand-in wife for the remainder of his time in Egypt, entertaining guests at formal dinners and parading with him around the city in carriage. His stepson, Eugène, who was on the campaign as well, was conveniently excused from these events. What a coincidence indeed. Now, the affair wouldn't last much longer. After Napoleon left Egypt, he passed her along like a ragdoll to his other generals before she would eventually make her way to Brazil, where she started a timber business and made a fortune. So, fun fact. Pauline would live to be 90 years old and died in 1869. Now, her affair with Napoleon, while brief, did little to help Napoleon's, or for that matter, France's, image on the European stage. When news of his tryst reached London, the newspapers celebrated the news and mocked him, portraying him as an uncouth general and anything less than a gentleman. Now, taken in a vacuum, the affair likely wouldn't have bothered directory much, but with the news of their defeat at the Battle of the Nile, now well known throughout Europe, the French government was now losing the public relations battles in addition to the naval ones. And unfortunately for them, as we'll see in the coming weeks, those losses would not be limited to the open waters. But before we get there, we need to close the book on 1798. 1799 would prove to be one of the most eventful years of Napoleon's life, a life, as I'm sure we've seen by now, which was full of eventful years, both prior to and upcoming. But as the fall came to a close, and with Cairo and Upper Egypt now mostly under control, Napoleon embarked on a two-pronged mission to begin a scouting trip of the ancient Suez Canal, also known as the Canal of the Pharaohs and the historical predecessor to the modern Suez Canal, and his pursuit of the Mamluks under the command of Murat in Imraham Bay in order to combat the oncoming Ottoman threat. In November, 
And Napoleon had sent a message to Jazar stating that if he, quote, continue to offer refuge to Ibrahim Bey on the borders of Egypt, I will look on that as a mark of hostility and go to Acre. Now, Jazar responded in kind by occupying much of the modern-day West Bank and positioning his troops only 20 miles from the French-Egyptian fort of Kadia. The Ottomans, two months after receiving word of the French defeat in the Nile, began their troop movement south to join Jazar and launch their counteroffensive against the French forces. Jazar made it his personal goal to expel the French and liberate Egypt. With this in mind, Napoleon prepared his troops to move through the desert and prepare for the second major leg of the Egyptian expedition, the Syrian campaign. With Egypt under control, he gave Cairo back some of its self-governance as a token of his goodwill. He replaced the military commission with a divan made up of about 60 members. Then, in late December, Napoleon, accompanied by his savants and a 300-man escort, traversed the desert in three days before reaching Suez. He followed the ancient canal route 40 miles inland until it disappeared into the desert, and he instructed his men to begin fortifying the area, both for purposes of defending the anticipated Ottoman assault and to assure that the French would begin monopolizing the coveted land to build his canal of the pharaohs. He wouldn't live to see his ambition become a reality, though, but his future nephew, future emperor of the French, Napoleon III, would be involved in the construction of the modern Suez Canal, which was completed in 1869. After inspecting the site and ordering the fortifications, Napoleon then crossed the Red Sea to visit the celebrated mountains of Moses, only about six miles from Suez, wishing to pay homage to the Jewish faith and nation. While he never reached Mount Sinai itself, Napoleon did come about as close to death as he ever would in any of his battles. He nearly drowned on the return trip from the Sinai to the Suez. Surprised by the rising tides and the marshy wetlands, Napoleon and his men got bogged down, leaving many horses behind as they struggled to get back across the narrow sea. With the swells rising as much as three feet in some places, it was a near miracle that the men survived at all, landing back in Suez later that evening. But there was much symbolism, however, in Napoleon's return crossing. He and his men survived the waters of the Red Sea, unlike the soldiers of Ramses, as told in the book of Exodus. Now, whether Napoleon took this as providence for his future to move nations is disputed, but there is little doubt that this brush with death certainly changed the course of history. But Napoleon did survive, and when he returned to Suez, it was announced that one of his civil engineers, Jacques-Marie Lapéa, found the remnants of the ancient water source. They even began surveying what a modern-day replacement would look like, but Napoleon had to cancel his ambitions with the Ottoman threat looming just as the year came to a close. And the close of 1798, it seemed, would set the stage for what would turn out to be one of the most momentous years in Napoleon's life and in French history. And with that, we'll leave it here, because next week we're going to get into the start of that fateful year that would be 1799, and we're going to kick it off with the encroaching Ottoman offensive and Napoleon's response as he launched his fateful campaign into Syria and the Levant. (laughs) 